All right, please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. So we continue our series, or actually conclude our series on fatherhood. That is, unless the guys don't sign up for the humble dad dunk tank, and then I got to continue it. We're concluding our series for our guest. This is the fifth week that we have been talking about fatherhood. And um, it's the fifth week we've been talking about fatherhood. And as we've been talking about fatherhood, we've been talking about it in the biblical category, where it's not just dads of children, but it's fathers of homes. It's men as head of their home. It's dad as children, but also husband and wife. And so when we're talking about honoring fathers today, and that's the title of my message, Honoring Fathers, we're talking about honoring men as heads of their home. If you are a guest with us this morning, I should also say this. Um, this might feel very unbalanced to hear. Well, that's because you're hearing one message out of five. And so to hear this teaching in its context is really beneficial. So you may want to go back and listen to the other four to get what we're saying in their context. Our text is going to be Ephesians 5, verses uh, 33 through chapter 6, verse 3. And this is where Paul is teaching that wives must respect their husbands and children must obey and honor their parents. And so here's how we're going to tackle this this week. First, I want to pray. Uh, then we are going to take a good bit of time to unpack kind of the verses leading up to our passage, uh, what comes before it, and then we will dive into how wives honor their husbands and how children honor their dads. So you're going to want Bibles open for this one because we're going to just be in the thick of this passage or phones open, however it is you're using God's word. Let's go ahead and open in prayer though. Father, we pray now in accordance with your word, Psalm 119, God, give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole heart. Lead us in the path of your commandments and give us delight in them. And we pray that you would now incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, for a couple weeks now, we've been in a section of Ephesians that really begins with chapter 5, verse 21. So let's bump back up to verse 21. Chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is a transitional statement. It connects the previous section to the following one. And actually, in the Greek, verses 15 through 21 are all one long sentence. Uh, Paul likes to use one long sentences. And grammatically speaking, the controlling verb in this sentence is up in verse 15. So if you look at verse 15, he says, walk not as unwise, but as wise. So the theme of this, this long sentence, verse 15 through 21, is walking in wisdom. How do you walk in wisdom? Not wise, or not unwise, but wise. And verse 21 is one of the ways you do that, by submitting to one another. Look carefully then how you walk, not as wise, unwise, but as wise. Lots of examples, including verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. All right, you follow all that so far? I'm build, I gotta build the theological foundation for all that we're gonna unpack. Now, here's the thing. What's popularly said about verse 21 is that it teaches something called, what, what some people call mutual submission. Mutual submission. 
Proponents of this mean something positive and they mean something negative by this. Positively, they mean all Christians should consider others' interests more important than their own. They should be servants of one another. That's what it means to submit to one another. And with this, I agree. Uh, to this end, Calvin wrote in his commentary, where love reigns, mutual services will be rendered. I do not accept even kings and governors whose very authority is held for the service of the community. So Calvin's right. Where love reigns, mutual service will be rendered. We will be serving one another. But then these same teachers will, will make a negative assertion as well, that mutual submission means removing all differences and all authorities between people. So verse 21 becomes an egalitarian leveler. They say it means we all should have the same rank and the same role in life. And this we must reject. Uh, this we have to reject because by insisting on this, they drain all the substance out of the rest of the passage. They drain all the divine wisdom that's imparted to us here. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. How do you do that? Well, verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 9 opens up for us how this submission works in the relationships God has put us in. It's not a flat leveler. Uh, it, it's got distinctions to it. Husbands and fathers, the men, are to be subject to Jesus. That's what we've been looking at the last few weeks. Wives are to be subject to their husbands, children to their parents, and slaves to their masters, or we would say employees to their bosses. So submitting to one another includes submitting to other, uh, others according to the authority and the order God has established. Now immediately, Paul opens this up in marriage. What do I mean? Well, let me show you what I mean, he says, in marriage. He gets immediately practical. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. All right. So let's go ahead and address the elephant in the room. That's about one of the most uncomfortable Bible passages for any of us, period, to talk about in our day. I mean, it would be the day when I'm broadcasting outside with huge speakers for the neighborhoods to hear that I'm reading the text, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Uh, feminism has accomplished a lot in our country including bamboozling us into thinking that equality and sameness are identical. They're not. If you ask the average person what the feminist cause is about, they'll tell you it's about women being equal with men. It's about ensuring that women are not treated as inferior or second-class citizens. And okay, so far, I agree. There have been serious mistakes made that need to be corrected and serious safeguards set up that need to be erected against any kind of machoism-driven traditionalism. Me the man, you the woman. That's ungodly. And it should be put an end to. That's what part of the last four weeks have been about. But here's the thing, the idea that women are equal to men is not a feminist idea. 
it is a Christian idea. God established equality in the garden when he created both man and woman in his image. They both resembled and represented God. Jesus practiced this kind of equality in his ministry, and then he put it really into practice in his death. He died both for men and for women to save them and both bring them in as adopted children to the Father, heirs to God. And this is what the Apostle Paul insists on in Galatians 3.28, that both men and women are one in Christ. Paul said this nearly two, mil, two millennia before the women's right people ever came along saying what they say. But what's happened in our day is the feminists have come along and they have taken credit for something that is really the fruit of the gospel. I like how Rebecca Merkel says it in one of her writings. She writes, unconverted societies never treat women well. And that is extraordinarily easy to document. Women being treated with respect is fruit that grows on one kind of tree, and that tree is the cross. So Christians actually agree with the feminist on the equal value of men and women. What we disagree over is what they smuggle into that equality. They believe equal means same. Equal means same, period. But it doesn't. Men and women, they say, are the same. And this is what we see washing over our country like a tsunami taking out innocent children who are getting sex change surgeries because no one will tell them that gender actually matters. That it matters if you are male or female because we are not the same, we are different. And this is what Christians believe, that men and women are equal in value, but that we are also different from each other, different in body, different in abilities, different in roles, and different in responsibilities. Again, Rebecca Merkel writes, a rolling pin in your kitchen, right? A rolling pin is different than a measuring cup. And we acknowledge that without saying one is better than the other. And what a weird thing if, or what a weird thing it would be if we did. Imagine showing someone your kitchen tools and having them indignantly accuse you of believing the measuring cup was better than the rolling pin. Better at what? If you want to measure some flour, you'll have a hard time with a rolling pin. And you'll have a similar problem trying to roll out a pie crust with a measuring cup. A rolling pin has to be evaluated according to the standards of what makes a good rolling pin. And measuring cups have to be judged on their own terms. Equality is not identical to sameness. Men and women are different. That's what we've been getting at with the men these last few weeks. That's what I have been hammering on over and over and over again so that the guys are kind of like... Doom. Like coming down on this. We, but we're looking this week at women and children. And women, I, I, want, I want to make sure you're not hearing what I'm not saying. Christian femininity does not mean embracing the helpless, soft little woman persona. Christian feminism does not mean embracing the helpless, soft little woman persona. That's more a stereotype than what scripture teaches. The Bible teaches that Christian women are strong. The Bible teaches that they are faith-filled. The Bible teaches that they laugh at the days to come. The Bible teaches that they are wise and vocal helpers. The Bible teaches that they counsel the men in the way that they should lead and a godly man listens to his wife. The Bible teaches that women are industrious. The Bible teaches that they are hard workers who even earn an income for their family. Go read Proverbs 31. But 
Christian women also put their family and their home first, just like men do, only with different roles and with different responsibilities. Now, this brings us back to our passage. That, that was a long aside, but I had to be made. Look back with me at verse 22 now. Look back with me at verse 22 now. Coming out of verse 21, Paul immediately moves the application. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. From here, Paul goes into an explanation of why a wife relates to her husband this way. And he says it's because this is the relationship of the church to Christ. Verse 23, for or because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in those things in which they agree with their husband. Those things that their husband is right about. I'd submit more if he was right more. Those things in which there's no clear right or wrong, but my husband has a sense or a conviction. No. What's it say? Wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Calvin says, let wives know that their husbands, though they cannot produce equal claims, he means to Christ and Christ's authority, still they have authority over them after the example of Christ. Now, it wouldn't be gentlemanly of me to only press the ladies today and the children. So let me bring you men in here on this one. We don't like the topic of authority. We're Americans after all, right? Founded on independence. Let freedom ring. Surprised I didn't get an amen. Good job. But the Bible teaches we are to submit to the authorities over us. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Do you submit to President Biden? Do you submit to, or did you, President Trump? Do you honor Nancy Pelosi? Do you honor Governor DeWine? Do you submit to Mayor Horrigan? These are hard questions. And COVID didn't make it easy for us, I get that. We want to jump to, well, obey God rather than men, or to excuses and like, well, this is statism. You don't get it. Or, hey, we're the authority in a constitutional republic. I've heard it all, folks. But let's get real. 
Whatever problems there are out there, let's not gloss over the bigger problems in here. We've said this before, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. There is rebellion in each of us. And that's a bigger problem than the problems out there. None of us wants to submit. None of us wants an authority outside of us. But remember this as well, you would do well to remember this, the way you feel about those authorities out there is the same way your kids feel or will feel when they're teenagers about you and your authority in your home. And men, just remember the same way you feel about authority out there is the same way your wife feels about authority in your home quote Calvin again, nothing is more irksome to the mind of man than subjection. Nothing is more irksome to the mind of man, irritating to the mind of man than subjection. And Paul knows this, which is why, going back to Ephesians 5 verse 21, this is exactly why he wrote, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. More literally, out of fear of Christ. We do this in the fear of the Lord. And verse 22, wives submit to husband as to the Lord. And down in chapter six, verse one, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. We do it as unto the Lord in the Lord. Now, does this mean that a wife can't disagree with her husband or a child, their father? No. Does it mean that a wife can't voice her opinion or a child theirs? No. Does it mean the wife and the children should be doormats? Absolutely not. Does it mean the family should sin if dad directs them to? May it never be so. But does it mean, wives, that you should demonstrate a posture of submission even as you argue with your husband? Yes. Does it mean that you should not resist his leadership? Yes. And does it mean, children, that you should submit yourself under your dad's authority and under your parents' authority as far as you are able? Yes. Now, God also knows the perversity of the male heart. Gentlemen, this is where you're supposed to say, he does. He does. And so it's not surprising that he immediately switches to the men in chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So he uses the same illustration he used for wives. They are to submit to the church as does Christ, or as to Christ, and this is helpful for the wives. But Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her, and this is helpful to the husbands. Also for the children, he immediately goes into a warning to the dads, chapter six, verse four, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So you see, friends, the Bible is incredibly just. It's incredibly fair because its origin is God who is just and is love. Now, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on the husband's and the dad's responsibilities here because that's what we've been talking about these last few weeks. They're to be submitted to Jesus. They're to sacrificially love their family. They're to be servants. They're to use their authority, not for their own purposes, but for God's. We've been covering that in detail, but I do just wanna point out that it's all woven throughout this passage and that's the kind of head a father should be over his home. Now, in this part of the passage we're in, Paul talks about a man loving his wife giving his life for her, washing her in the word, presenting her holy, nourishing and cherishing her, holding fast to her. And all of this refers to Christ and the church. It refers to Christ and the church, even as it applies to a husband and his wife, which leads finally to verse 31. Note how it begins. However, however, nevertheless, Paul's coming back to his point. He says, however, the word can also mean and, but it's more adversative here. He, 
He's saying, listen, I know I got caught up in the heavenlies. I was talking about Jesus and the bride and he's washing her and he's loving her and he's sacrificing. It's beautiful. Oh, okay. Back to my point. However, he's bringing it back down to earth. He's bringing it back down to the ground, to the nitty gritty where we live and be. And verse 32, this mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Continuing on, chapter six, verse one, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. You've probably heard it said before, he's so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good. He's so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good. This is true of some people, but it is not true of the apostle Paul. He can take us to the heights of glory, but then he brings us back down into the dirt where we live, down into the nitty gritty of family life. And for all he has to say about a man's responsibility to love and sacrifice for his family, to nourish and cherish them, Paul also says it's a wife and a child's responsibility to honor the head of their home. So this finally brings us to two points this morning Two practical points, getting down to the practical. We've laid the theological foundation. Let's get to the practical outworking. One, how a wife shows honor to her, or how a wife honors her husband, how a wife honors her husband, and then two, how a child honors their father. Point number one, how a wife honors her husband. I think the best answer, the most useful answer is in verse 33. This is why it's part of our text. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she, what? There's these fans, can't hear it. Respects her husband. Now, respect is a, a fine translation of this word. I actually think it's a useful one. We're gonna use it, but it also obscures something here. The root of the Greek word we actually know in English. It's a word we use. The Greek word here is phobetai, from the root word phobeo, from which we get the, group, the, the word phobia. Phobia, fear, claustrophobia, the fear of enclosed spaces, arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. I have that one. <laughs> Verse 33, let the wife see that she phobetai, fears her husband. Now the dictionary defines fear as a strong emotion caused by a perception of danger. Strong emotion caused by a perception of danger. That's one kind of fear. A soldier under fire is terrified because there's danger all around him. He perceives that. And that's one kind of fear, and it's the kind we're most familiar with. But there's another kind of fear in Scripture, a second kind. In Hebrew, one of the more common words for fear is associated with physical trembling knees knocking and there are at least two reasons you go weak to the knee the first is what we covered you're in dangerous situation you're in dangerous territory a soldier under fire and terrified for his life is likely to shake but there's a second reason we tremble there's a second reason we become second time we become weak need and that's when i'll give you an example that's when for instance the kind of weak needness that a groom feels on his wedding day when his bride-to-be is walking down that aisle to him. 
That's my favorite part of, the, of a, one of my favorite parts of doing weddings is I'm right up close there. Where I can just kind of watch the groom as she comes out and walks. And he's just like. <sighs> That's a different kind of weak need. It's one where you are filled in that moment with, with reverence with admiration, with respect. That's, by the way, the fear of the Lord. This is the kind of fear of God we read about in Scripture that leads to wisdom and brings delight. We fear the Lord not because He's fearsome. Well, I mean, we do fear Him like that outside of Christ. And there's a wisdom in that. That kind of fear that God is fearsome that he can condemn us and send us to hell, the fear of damnation, that sends us flying to Jesus. There's wisdom in that. But once we're in Christ, once we are in the sweetness of salvation, once we've been adopted by God, once his perfect love cast out, or once his perfect love is, is in us, it casts out that kind of fear, that kind of terror fear. The love of God for us in Jesus casts out fear of condemnation. We don't fear the Lord anymore because he's fearsome but because he's awesome, because he's holy, because he's mighty and he's mighty in love. And so back into our passage, look at what Paul does here. This is so fascinating. I, I showed you he uses fear for Betai in verse 33 as to how a wife respects her husband. But up in verse 21, that passage we started with, submitting to one another out of reverence, that's the same word, phobetai, fear, out of fear for Christ. So you see what Paul's doing here? He frames this whole talk about a wife's submission to her husband with this inclusio, fear the Lord, and so wives, fear your husband. Meaning, you fear your husband, not because he's fearful. May he never be fearful. If he's ever fearful, you come and get your pastors. You don't fear him because he's fearful. You fear him you revere him, you respect him, because Christ's authority is in him. It's Jesus's authority that's put in to him. It, it's put into civil authorities, it's put into pastors, it's put into parents, and it's put into husbands. And so we fear those in authority because they stand in the place of God. Now, wives, this is important for you to get to, though. This is not a slavish fear. Paul is very intentional here. He addresses you in verse 33 in the singular to stress your individual responsibility. And he doesn't use the customary imperative where he just commands something, but instead he uses this imperative construction that's rendered pretty well here. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let her do this. It's like this imperative with an invitation. The stress here is on a wife's willingness to give respect to her husband, freely giving it to him. It's a response in you to God's established order. You're commanded to respect your husband, but it's also a free will gift you actually give your husband. You choose to give it to him of your own accord. So what does it look like though? What, what does that mean? A wife 
How does a wife honor her husband by respecting him? What do I mean by that, practically? Yes, it's submitting to him. That's talked about here. But really, I think there's a reason Paul ends on respect. Did you realize he started with wives submit to your husbands? And then at the end, he says, respect your husbands. Why does he do that? Why does he change up the word? I think it's because respect has to do with the heart. Respect has to do with the heart. Again, Calvin's helpful here. He says, where reverence or respect does not exist, there will be no willing subjection. Submission flows out of reverence. And reverence or respect is a matter of the heart. Jesus taught us, clean the inside of the cup and the outside will be taken care of. So submission, which is the outside of the cup, that's the action, begins with respect inside the cup. If you have respect in your heart, submission will get taken care of. So what does it mean for a wife to respect her husband. Well, let me make two points before I answer that. First, remember what I said a couple weeks ago, that the commands of scripture are generally aimed at our what? You remember? Our weaknesses, our weaknesses. We're told to do things we wouldn't normally do if we weren't told to do them. So children are instructed to obey their parents exactly because that's a weakness for them. Husbands are told to love their wives exactly because that's a weakness for them. And wives are commanded to respect their husbands exactly because that's a weakness for you. Generally speaking, children need to work on obedience, men need to work on love, and women need to work on respect. Second, second thing I'd say, not only is the commands generally aimed at our weaknesses, but they're also generally aimed at a need. They're generally aimed at a need. What need? Well, parents need children to obey them, or there's chaos. There's Lord of the Flies. They're taken over. <laughs> children need, or parents need children to obey them. Children need, as we've been studying the last few weeks, fathers that cherish and discipline and instruct them. A wife needs companionship from her husband. And a husband needs respect from his wife. Paul uses the word nourish several times in this passage, and I think that's helpful. These things are foods that we need nourished with. I learned some of this from a teaching by Douglas Wilson that I thought was really helpful. A wife needs her husband's companionship. That's what Paul had hit earlier about loving. Um, what's companionship? I, I take it to mean his faithfulness and his pursuit his faithfulness and his pursuit. This is what she feeds on in the relationship. When Paul says a husband should love his wife like Christ does the church, giving himself up for her, cleansing her with the word, presenting him to herself, this is the outworking of Jesus's faithfulness to and pursuit of his bride. And wives are nourished by that kind of companionship. I don't know how many times my wife has told me, when I'm telling you stop pursuing me, I really mean keep pursuing me. When I say no, I really mean no, yes, yes. Because she needs to know I'm loyal always. And I'm with her through everything. Do I do that perfectly? Absolutely not. That's why she has to keep telling me this. But we see it right here. Likewise, men feed on respect. Men feed on respect. What's respect? I'd say, this is how I'm breaking it down. I think it's deference and admiration. 
deference and admiration. First, it's a willing deference to his authority as head. But more than that, in light of all that we've been studying the last few weeks, what I mean by this is deference to his responsibility before God for the flourishing of your family. That's his job, and he's going to give an account to God in a way you will never have to. He will shield you from that kind of accountability to God. He will stand for God for you and your family. So deference realizes that and wants to help him give the best accounting he can. It's deference. And then two, I think respect looks like admiration for what he does. Admiration for what he does. Now, does that mean that his remodeling of your bathroom was all that good? All that admirable? Not necessarily. I mean, certainly not if I'm doing it. But he did it. To serve your family. And that's admirable. Does this mean that his skill as a customer service rep or whatever it is he does for a living is all that impressive? You know, does he just enthrall you with stories about his work day? And, oh, I, just, I did this, I did that. And you're just, wow, you, wow. I mean, not necessarily, but he does it to provide for the family, and that's admirable. Does it mean he's all that good at leading the family? Not necessarily, but there are things he is good at. There are things that he does do, and you can start with that, respect what he does do. If he doesn't normally lead family devotions, and out of the last few weeks, he says, you know, I'm gonna give this a try. I'm gonna give this a go, let's do that. And he does, and it's just a crash and burn, miserable failure. He botches the text. You have to correct his theology. Actually, honey, you got the Trinity all wrong. It's not like a three-leaf clover. I mean, it's just, that's modalism. Don't go there, honey. Okay, kids, it's just a, it, maybe he botched that completely. Maybe he was so stinking boring. Everyone's like falling asleep through it all. And you're trying to spruce it up and make it applicable. And, but he did it. Thank him for that. Man feeds on respect. It nourishes him. And over time, it strengthens him to do it more and hopefully to do it better. In my own life, it's funny. I, I, can, I can think a sermon went well. This is my life, right? This is my job. This is my work. I can think a sermon went well. Wow. <laughs> I mean, this is all the glory to the Lord, but I'm involved in this. I, I've, got, I've invested in this, right? I've worked hard. I'm, think, I'm trying. So I can, come to, I can think, I think that went well. And then I hear from you after on a Sunday morning, and you're, and you're that helped, and that ministered, and that was good. And I can think, that would be good. That's good. Okay, good. It seemed to resonate. I'm glad God used it. That's wonderful. But I can sit down from my, across from my wife or sit in that car, on the car ride home, and I'm just like, but what does she think? I mean, what, I mean, what does she think about how I did? I mean, what does she think? Because men feed on respect. I don't need to know that it changed her life. I just need to know that she thinks, good job for getting up there and doing that. Wives, this is how you honor your husband. 
This is what submission is born out of, a heart that respects him like this, that defers to his position and admires his achievements. And to help you get started, here's your homework, wives. Make a list of at least five things your husband does well. Five things your husband does well, five things he's good at, five things you're thankful he does. And guys, be gentlemen about this. You don't get to ask your wives for that list. So uh, the pastor gave you some homework this week. It's Wednesday, haven't heard about that yet. I could help you fill it out if you need me to. No, husbands, you're not allowed to bring that up. This is where you subject yourself to your wife. This is where you submit, you lay that down. Instead, here it is, guys, your homework. Make your own list. Not about yourselves and what you're so thankful for that you do. You, you, you give that list to yourself enough. A list of five things you love about your wife. A list of five things you're attracted to in your wife. And I don't just mean physically. I mean five things that if she were gone, you would hate that this would not be in your presence anymore. And you go and share that list with her. And then wives, I invite you to respond to your husband's pursuit and share your list with him. And if none of that happens and y'all are mad at each other because no, I mean, no one's sharing with me and he's not sharing with me and I'm not gonna share with him until he shares with me. And, but, and if that happens and there's a royal mess this week, well, I'm gonna say, praise God, we're here to help. Let's work this out. All right, number two, point number two, honor, how a child honors their father. How a child honors a father. We're all children here, but I wanna speak to the kids specifically. So kids. Listen up, young and old, this part of the sermon's for you. Don't worry, it's only gonna go another 40 minutes. I got your attention, we're good. Some of you kids have been making some wonderful artwork. Maybe you have a picture of me waving my hands like a crazy man, and that's all you know about me really, but I'd love to see that if you made that picture. But for the moment, I want you to put your picture down and I want you to give me your attention, give me your ears. I wanna talk to you for just a couple minutes about honoring your father, your mother too, but specifically your, your dad. So let me read this passage to you, and then I, I just want to quickly explain it. If you've got a Bible, kids, you can follow along, or you can look at your parents. God says to you, children, this is Ephesians 6, 1, and 3, 1 through 3, children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is what? This is right. That's right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. So, First up, little kids, young children, young kids, I'm talking 10 and under. Listen up, this is for you. Children, obey your parents for, in the Lord, for this is what? Right, that's right. So you honor your dad by obeying him. Now, do you know what the word obey means? In Greek, it's got a really funny meaning. It means put your ear under. Isn't that a weird way to talk about obedience? Put your ear under. But what it means is that when your dad talks, 
you put your ear under his words. So if you're a little kid, I want you to grab your ear. Grab your ear. You can do it. Don't be afraid. Grab your ear. Look at me. Grab your ear and put it under. That's right. You want to put your ear under your mother and father's instruction. You want to listen and obey, like Mr. Wilson was teaching you today. Fast, happy, and all the way. That's how we do obedience. And this is the last thing I'll say to you little kids, okay? This is how you worship Jesus. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. So you obey, obeying your dad, that glorifies God. So here's the homework for you little kids, okay? Here it is. Since you're all so good at drawing pictures, I want you to draw a picture of yourself with a huge big ear, okay? And then you draw your dad and your mom there beside you talking to you. And I want you to take that picture and put it on your fridge at home or in your bedroom or somewhere where you see it and you and your parents can talk about it and remember, okay? Obeying is putting your ear under your parents' instructions. And that's your homework, a picture. Parents are all like, man, why don't we get pictures as homework? When I was a child, I spoke as a child. All right, for you older kids, older kids, 10 and up, including you teenagers. Here's the word for you. As long as you're in your parents' home, you need to obey them. But obedience is not forever. At some point, it fades. If your dad's a good dad, when you are 25 years old and living in your, on your own, in your own home, he's not going to come over and tell you to clean your room. Now, if you're living in his home, he has every right to do that. But if you're in your own, no. You honor him by obeying him now while you're in his home. You put your ear under his instruction, just like the little kids. But honoring your dad is bigger than obedience. Honoring your dad is something bigger than just obeying him. And again, this applies to your moms as well, but we're focusing on your dad. So for you older ones, I think the key verse for you is two and three. For you teenagers, here it is. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. You know what this is, right? This is one of the Ten Commandments. It's the fifth one. There are two tables to the Ten Commandments. There's one through four. That does with your relationship with God. And then there's five through, five through ten. That deals with your relationship with other people. So this is number five. It's that pivotal one going from God to other people. It's the foundation for how you relate to other people in this life, in this world. It begins with learning how to honor your mother and father. So what's it mean to honor them, kids? What's it mean to honor them, teenagers? Well, the word in Hebrew in the Ten Commandments is kavod, which is kind of like COVID, but very different. It's kavod, which means glory or weight. Weight. And I want to go with that idea of weight for a minute, okay? In 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel, you can study this this week, there's the story about the high priest Eli. I talked about this a couple weeks ago, who had two sons who were priests. And his, his sons were schmucks, right? They did not know God and they kept disobeying. And one of the ways they disobeyed was they, they went up and they stole the best pieces of meat from people who were bringing offerings, uh, sacrifices to the temple. They would say, oh, that's the best piece of meat. That's mine. 
I get that. That was one of the ways that they were, they were disobeying. And when God confronts Eli, get this, this is this neat thing that happens in this story. When God confronts Eli over their sin, he says to Eli that Eli honored his sons, honored his sons over God by fattening himself with the meat that they had stolen. So he's literally like, he tells them they shouldn't do that, but then he's, he's eating the meat. He's enjoying it, the spoils. He's getting fat over it. And then God says, and thus you have lightly esteemed me, lightly esteemed me. So there's this play on words. Eli honors his sons, weight, counts them weighty. And in turn, he gets weightier, fat, by fattening himself on the meat. And he's lightly treating God. Then later, when Eli finds out that his sons are killed in battle by judgment by God and the Ark of the Covenant is stolen, we're told he fell off his chair, broke his neck because he was old and heavy, weighty. This story teaches us that honor has to do with weighing someone as heavy, not actually as fat as it illustrates, but as significant. We should honor God by making him weighty in our lives, the most important thing. He's like the sun which our life revolves around. His word is weightier, heavier than anyone else's word. But standing in for God in your family is your dad, as well as your mom with him. And so to honor them means next to God, you weigh their words heavy. You count their counsel as significant. And for you older teenagers, I hope you heard last week uh, talking about your dad's job to prepare you to launch. So I know you want to get out on your own. And your pastor just told you last week that I'm for that. That's good. That's a right thing. God made you to be independent. You are to go, leave your parents home, uh, grab a fast to a wife, hold her and become one flesh with her. God made you to set out and start your own life. But Honoring your parents means weighing their counsel more than anyone else's. It means giving them more influence than anybody else. It means being grateful for all they do and have done for you. And it means telling them that you're grateful. It means inviting their counsel. It means actually weighing their counsel. And as long as you're in their house, it means respecting their rules. If you older kids and you teenagers want to draw a picture, draw a picture of your dad, really big, maybe really big. You can do it as a joke. Make him really big. Then you go up to him, give him a picture and say, dad, there's no one as big as you in my life. But then say, seriously, dad, I count you as significant. I honor you. To conclude this message then, and really to conclude this series, I wanna give a final word, a final word of instruction to you men. So back to the husbands and the fathers. You are owed honor in your home. You may not deserve it, but you are owed it. But this does not give you a license to go around and demand it. This does not give you a license to pout if you do not have it. 
This instead is where you are to subject yourself to your wife and your children. You don't go around huffing and puffing. Where's my honor? You hear the pastor talk about honor and honoring me and honor me, honor me, 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 honor, honor, honor. And you're not around to go around sulking and whining. Oh, it honors me. I should get a little bit. I mean, I just, I mean I'm serving them. I'm mowing the lawn. I'm doing that. I grill their food. That's not manly. And it's not fatherly. However, there is a way to seek honor that is godly. Jesus teaches it to us in Luke chapter 14. When you are invited to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 14, 8 through 11. A dad should not do the carnal thing of claiming the best seat at the table. A man should not elbow his way into the best seat and demand honor. He does not seek his own. Instead, a man humbles himself. He takes the lowest spot. He subjects himself to his wife and his children's needs. We consider their interests more significant than our own, and we let them, as God moves them, exalt us in God's timing. We let them raise us higher, and wives and children do that. Honor your husband. Honor your father. This is how a family should function. A father takes responsibility. He takes the position of a servant. He humbles himself down to the ground. And then his wife and his children come along and raise him up. They honor him in the presence of all. They exalt the head of their home. Let's pray. Father, your word gives life. And this word particularly is a word of life. Uh, Lord, it's like a word, it's like John the Baptist calling from the wilderness. It's a word that is timely, it's a word that is fit for our day, but it is not necessarily welcomed in our day. Uh, it is not necessarily one for the, the marketplace, at least welcomed as such. But you come proclaiming the truth. You come and you gather us under the truth. Your church is the buttress of truth, Lord. And so here it is, God, and here we have opened it up and here we open ourselves up to it. God, we pray. Train us in the way that we should go. From little kids to grown children. And from that, help us not to depart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Let me invite you to stand.